Hello, let me add my welcome to Kath this morning. It's really good to see you. As Kath said, we're starting off a new series uh, this morning. And um, I thought uh, a way into this this morning was just giving you the highlights of the last month or so that I've had. Uh, some of you know who've been around church recently. It's not been a classic. Um, seriously, Kath and I have had a pretty rough few weeks. Uh, probably in the scheme of a year, it's been challenging uh, around our health a lot. We've had loads of illness hit our family, Kath, me, and our daughter, Emily, who's in the other room, who's nearly two. And uh, this has kind of been like a combination of a child starting nursery for the first time and like the post-COVID thing where like none of our immune systems are firing whatsoever. And it's been one thing after another thing after another thing. Anyway, about a month ago, like things kind of went from bad to worse. And uh, Kath, who's been obviously getting more and more pregnant recently, that tends to happen in pregnancy, um, she, her health really wasn't good, and so she went to the doctor. They looked at her, and uh, long story short, she ended up getting sent to, to hospital to check for a blood clot around her lungs. And um, it was pretty scary, and she was in and out of hospital for a couple of days. Thankfully, they ruled out the blood clot, but it turned out to be pneumonia uh, that she probably had for a few months, plus a rib fracture, probably from all the coughing that she'd been doing over that uh, time. So she came home, she was on antibiotics, she was instructed to rest, and we tried to clear the week in front of us to kind of regather, regroup. Um, unfortunately, Emily didn't get the message, and she caught in that week a particularly unpleasant vomiting bug um, that put paid to that plan. Less than two weeks after that, we were on our uh, first night of our church weekend away. Somehow, Emily managed to catch another vomiting bug within two weeks. I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone, too, in two weeks. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was just another absolute wounder for us. There was an amazing answer to prayer with the McCrills here, pray, gathered around us and prayed for us. She was instantly better from that moment. It was really amazing. Um, and again, we tried to clear the week after that to, like, recover and recuperate as a family, unfortunately, Kath and I then, in the middle of that week, came down with the very same vomiting bug. Um, I'll spare you the details, but you know you can imagine. And um, we were properly laid out, and this had just been one thing after another. To make it worse, on the Friday, I got a call from Emily's nursery saying uh, she was struggling to breathe. And so I had to lift myself out of bed, feeling pretty horrendous, pick her up, and take her to A&E. And, um, as we sat in the hospital last Friday at night, uh, it's, it's fair to say we were shattered, we were exhausted from uh, the last few weeks. It was a, a very low uh, moment. And although Emily got kind of better fairly quickly after that, it was one of those moments where exhaustion and stress and discouragement just became too much for us. And some of you probably in this room have received teary voicemails from either Kath or me around about time for Friday afternoon last week. And I share all this to say... Your pastors are not strangers to the fact that life can be pretty hard sometimes. Many in this room have faced or are facing at the moment difficult or wearying situations too. It might not be your health, uh, it might be work pressures or family drama or heartbreak or loss. I know this because that's life, right? That's, these are the things that happen. And if you're not one of these people, one thing that's certain is that some of those around you at the moment, your colleagues or your neighbours... Uh, those that you pass at work or home or at uni every day in Liverpool are going through all kinds of things like that. And what this shows us is that the number one thing we need to hear over and over again are messages of hope that tend to our weary souls. And the heart of the message we need to hear is this, that there is a God who loves us, who knows us and is for us 
and is with us because he loves us. And this is, when we think about it, really why we gather for church every week. Because we need to hear about the love of God all over again to bring us fresh hope for a fresh week. As Christians, it's not that we hear this stuff like at the beginning of our journey of faith, at our baptism or something, and then we move on from it. God says uh, a couple of times in the Bible, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And part of what he's saying in this is it's always about me. It's always about my love towards you. It's the first word over your life, and it's the last one too. And it's just what you need to hear in any given moment. I just, I wonder if you know that today. I wonder if you know that the word that your heart is aching for right now, in whatever circumstances you're in, is that God really, really, really loves you. And this is true of our friends as well, when we talk about our neighbors or our colleagues. As a church, we, um, we say we, we want to be a herald of good news to the city. The message we're heralding is simple, that there's a God who loves us. And that's why in the run-up to Easter, we're going to be fully on message. Right? That's, the, that's the job of this series, to be fully on message. During this series that we're starting today, we're going to be parking ourselves firmly in this idea of the love of God. We're going to be like rolling around in it and soaking in it until it rubs off on us. And it's going to be food for our souls. Right? That's by design. It's also a season for us to invite those around us that have been placed around us, our kind of weary co-travelers in life, if you like, uh, who maybe have never heard this stuff before, or maybe they really need to hear it anew in this season, to come to this not-so-scary place called church with us and get some hope in their lives. That's the heart behind this uh, series over the next six weeks. And we're going to start today at the beginning. How many of you know that the Bible is a love story? Right, this is something that we often uh, miss, particularly in the New Testament, but from beginning, uh, from, in the Old Testament, from beginning to end, that's what the Bible is. It's a love story. That's the whole point of the whole thing. And so we're going to start for that reason at the beginning today. We're going to start in the Old Testament, but it's going to lead us into the New, eventually to the cross and towards Easter. And we're going to soak in these different scenes that we encounter in this biblical love story. We're going to look first at the rainbow today, then the wrestle, the dance, the servant, the approach, and finally the resurrection. And spoiler alert, it's going to be good news. So I want to invite you to, uh, to lean into this journey during the remainder of Lent, to get ready to fill your heart up with good news about the love of God. And why not invite some people you love to come and be part of it uh, too with you? So before we jump in, let me just pray for us uh, now. We're going to invite the presence of God and then I'll launch in. Father, we welcome you here. Just thank you that we've already been singing it, declaring it today already in worship. It's the love of God that we come for. It's the love of God we need. It's the love of God our hearts are aching to hear spoken over us afresh. I want to pray that each one of us, wherever we are, whatever we're carrying, that this morning that you would reveal to our hearts, not just our heads, something of your intense love towards us today. That would fill us with hope as we go out from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the series intros. It's always my favorite bit. So today we're starting with the rainbow. That's right. It's the symbol that's had the, the biggest revival, 
right, since April 2020. It was kind of dusted off and brought back out when it was painted on the windows of just about every home with young children uh, across the world, mainly, I think, to get the parents through lockdown. Uh, the rainbow. And the origins of the rainbow, of course, uh, as a symbol of hope, come from the flood story, which we find near the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis uh, chapters 6 to 9. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to turn to it now. It's near the beginning, easy to find. Emily's got a... Um, got a toddler's Bible, right? So she's got, I don't know if you've seen these kind of kids' uh, Bibles, and she likes me to read it to her sometimes. It's full of like bite-sized kids' stories based on scenes in the Bible. I say based on, some are more accurate than others. I've always found it funny that whatever version of a kid's Bible you happen to open, of the handful of Old Testament scenes that make it in there, guaranteed the flood story is always one of them. It's usually something like, something, 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 flood, Something, 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 David and the slingshot. Something, 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 Daniel and the lion's den. Jesus. And uh, it's interesting that the flood always makes it into like one of the highlights because I think it's, there's loads of animals in the story, right? I think that's mainly why it always makes it in. Everyone knows kids loves animals. Um, but when you're thinking about the first and simple things to teach a child about God, it seems to me like a bit of a strange pick, if I'm really honest. Um, you know, any child Bible compilers out there, Take the feedback on board today. Because the, the, the flood is, is a horror story. The flood's a horror story. It's a story about the annihilation of the world. And I sometimes skip over it, I'll be honest with Emily. At that point, I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Even for us adults, it's a pretty strange story for us to digest. And um, if we read it wrong, we can come away with a picture of God that's anything but loving. It's like the opposite of a loving God. But you know, Actually, if we read it carefully, if we read it like it's supposed to be read, like the author of Genesis intended, then what emerges is one of the first and most enduring pictures of God's love within the whole Bible. So that's where we're going today, and I promise we're going to get there. Uh, First, though, we, we need to spend a bit of time getting some key points of background clear in our minds if we're going to actually see this picture as it was intended to see it clearly. So a bit of background to whistle through together. Firstly, point one, uh, and we've spoken about this many times before. Yeah, next slide, Rob, cheers. Um, Genesis, in particular, the the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is uh, a very particular kind of writing. It's a kind of extended theological origin story for the world we find ourselves in today. And as such, it's one of the most insightful texts in the Bible. It's packed full of deep, loaded truths about who God is and why we're here and why the world we live in is the way it is. But to read it rightly, we need to resist the urge to impose our like 21st century questions onto this 3,000-year-old text. We need to resist the urge, in other words, uh, to bring our microscopes and our copy of Darwin to the table with us. Because if we do that, we're going to miss the point and miss the treasure Uh, that's here for us in this book. These aren't issues the writer of Genesis is concerned with. There's much deeper things that he's driving at. Okay, point two, the flood story. We need to be aware that a version of this flood story appears in many other ancient cultures, not just in the Bible, uh, that predate the Bible, in fact. It's a a common disaster story, and it um, it shows up in writings from uh, neighboring Mesopotamia, neighboring Israel, that is, in Greece, in India, even as far away as the Mayans in North America. 
And some of these other versions of the flood story would have been familiar to people long before Genesis was written. So yeah, you can look at that slide and just see these are just some of the ones from like neighboring Mesopotamia and Syria that would have been kind of in the cultural ether before Genesis was penned. So what this tells us is that the author of Genesis is part of his like wider 11 chapter theological origin story. What he's doing in the flood is consciously taking up what is a familiar story and then retelling it in a radically different way with the intention of revealing to us a truer perspective about the world that we find ourselves in. And in particular, a truer perspective about the character of God and his relationship with us. Does that make sense, tracking so far? Point two. So when it comes to the flood, what we're doing is we're reading a modified version of a familiar disaster story. And what this tells us, of course, is that the real point of the flood account for us as something that is the word of God speaking life to us is that the, the point the author of Genesis is driving at isn't going to be found in the places in the story that are similar to the existing versions, right? It's not going to be found in the places in the story that are kind of have all these things in common with these existing ones. It's going to be found in the places that are radically different from these accounts where the story has been changed. And helpfully for this exercise, we have copies of uh, many of these other theological origin stories preserved, particularly the ones that come from Israel's Mesopotamian neighbors, and we can compare them. And when we look at these accounts of the flood, we find there's lots and lots of areas that they have in common, that they share. So here are some common uh, features. Uh, I'll just rattle through them. Divine decision to destroy humankind, warning to the flood hero, Noah, or they've all got other names that I can't pronounce, uh, command to build the ark, the hero's obedience, command to enter the ark, entering, closing the door, description of the flood coming, destruction of life, and then the end of the rain and all that comes with that, the ark grounding on a mountain, the hero opening the window, birds even getting sent out on reconnaissance, you know, remember the dove getting sent out, the exit from the ark, sacrifices offered to the gods or God in our case, and even this really specific detail that seems to be in all the stories, or a bunch of them at least, the divine smelling of the sacrifice, like the gods or the gods smells the sacrifice. It's in all of them. There's all kinds of details like that, uh, even the, um, the animals going into the ark, the full works. So there is a lot that is the same. There's a lot that's the same and that tracks through, except on some key points. Do you want to know what they are? <laughs> I hope so. After that intro, I'll be really like, oh, no, guys, do you know what? Jamie, keep it to yourself. <laughs> well, in, the, in what's called the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic, which was listed there before, which is the most extensive of the Mesopotamian versions, it's one that we have, it's like 50 pages long, um, the flood is brought about by a vague feeling among the gods that humans are multiplying too much and generally making too much noise in the world. Right? That's one thing. Uh, in it as well, the Babylonian version of Noah escapes only because not all the gods agree with this and one of them sort of tips him off. Uh, also, when the rains come, the gods are described as cowering like dogs. In other words, the storm they'd brought on gets out of even their control. Uh, plus, they were said to rely, the gods, on the human religious sacrifices for food. And so during the flood, they went starving. And when the waters recede and the gods uh, find out Babylonian Noah survived. They're livid about it. They argue among themselves. 
But then, uh, when this Babylonian Noah offers his first sacrifice after getting out of the ark, the gods like swarm around it like flies around a barbecue. And the story closes with these gods issuing some decrees to the survivors, because Noah wasn't supposed to survive their version of Noah. Uh, There's some decrees that basically amount to future population control. Basically, from now on, they say uh, some women should be celibate, others are going to be infertile, uh, and many children are going to die young. It's depressing stuff, really. Before they then whisk the Babylonian Noah off to a hidden location, they make a god out of him alongside him. The end. I've saved you reading it at that point, but that's my snapshot. And a fair question we might ask is what was the take-home supposed to be from this kind of pre-existing theological origin story? What was the point of it intended to be, to leave in people's minds? And, you know, I've been reflecting on this a bit uh, this week, and um, I think one aspect of uh, this existing story one aspect of the point of it is surely this, surely this, that a global catastrophe like this could happen again. If humans make too much noise, uh, populate too much, if society gets too out of hand, disaster like this could strike again. The world we live in could crumble. And next time, next time, Babylonian Noah might not get such a lucky escape. Now, before we get into the Genesis account itself, and we are getting there, I promise you, um, let's just take a moment to think about how relevant this fear of the world falling apart is for us today. How many of us feel like that at the moment? That sense of doom and dread, yeah. Um, In times we live in, there's an unprecedented sense of pessimism about the future. I came across a word last night on BBC News, new word, it'll be in like the annals at the end of this year, doom scrolling. Just endless compulsion to scroll for doom on your phone. How many of you, I'm looking at a few people who look like they've been doing some doom scrolling. Seriously, I could, couldn't count how many friends I've spoken to over the last few months, both inside and outside the church, who daily feel heavy about the direction the world's going in, to the extent that it's affecting their lives. Last year, the largest ever survey of its kind was conducted measuring the emerging psychological impact of the climate crisis on children. Researchers talked to 10,000 16 to 25-year-olds across 10 countries around the world. And what they found is that the great majority of them now were growing up with significant feelings of distress or anxiety, anger, and other negative emotions because of the specter of climate change. They were um, inheriting and that was hanging over their future. And this concern uh, in the, the Gilgamesh epic about population control is actually, when we think about it, not so unfamiliar to us. More and more people in our day are choosing to have fewer children, either because they're concerned about the negative environmental impact of human population growth, or because they're nervous about the kind of world they'd be bringing them up in. Now, into this heaviness, then, the shock of the pandemic has not exactly helped. This kind of uh, shocking reality exposing the ease with which a global health disaster could just strike at any minute. Then last year's capital riots, yeah, just seeing, like, a guy with a shaman mask on just, like, rioting through the seat of democratic power in the world. It's pretty troubling, right? You can feel like the world's crumbling. And now this year, the sight of Russian tanks moving into Europe has massively increased our sense of dread. All of this stuff is really heavy, uh, stuff that's weighing on us culturally at the moment. This is just like a really relevant thing for us to be thinking about. 
The fact is the world's a more intimidating place for us in the West now than it has seemed in a long time. And as a result, it can be hard for us to carry much hope in our hearts for the wider world we live in. And perhaps a bit like the Babylonians with their disaster narrative, I wonder if one of the reasons many sit and watch disaster movies on Netflix is because it feels strangely cathartic, right, to watch a fictional world crumbling when our own one feels quite so fragile. The point is it's into exactly this kind of cultural landscape that the author of Genesis wants to speak by taking up this familiar disaster story and retelling it for us in a different way. How's it different then? Well, firstly, in the Genesis version, the flood doesn't derive from a kind of superficial, vindictive argument among the gods about humans making too much noise. And in the Genesis version, Noah's survival wasn't just by chance. Here, the flood was the solemn action of the one and only God, who, in deep sadness for the moral state of the world, made the difficult decision to begin again, raising up the ordinary but faithful Noah as the father of all, like the new Adam in this new world. But, you know, these are just tweaks from this point. These are just tweaks so far in the story that the writer of Genesis makes. These are small adjustments. The real difference is found at the end. It's found in the ending to the story as Genesis tells it. This is the part that totally, completely differs from the others. It goes completely off script. And so it's here where we need to lean in because it's here we're going to find the point that the author of Genesis wants us to grasp in this story. So let's have a read of this ending together. Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 onwards. Uh, If you haven't got a Bible... us to keep in mind the ending of the Gilgamesh epic, right, we talked about a moment ago, the the angry reaction of the gods discovering there's a lone survivor to this flood, and then their brief, blunt pronouncements of future population control. Let's read the Genesis version, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And skipping ahead now, verse 7 again. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's us, by the way. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again 
will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring the clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. And whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. Can you see now what the author of Genesis is wanting to show us about the character of God? Firstly, he's consciously rejecting these other versions of this story, and he's inviting us into a totally different way of interpreting things in our world. How does this new version end? It ends with blessing. With blessing after blessing after blessing. God blesses humanity like he blessed them in the beginning. And in a direct rejection of the Gilgamesh epic, he speaks multiplication over them several times. Did you pick it up? Be fruitful and increase. And in doing this, the author of Genesis is subverting this familiar disaster story. And he's making its points, not so much the flood, but the rainbow. It becomes a great inversion. Before the flood, the world was doomed to destruction, yes, but now... For all time, its preservation is guaranteed. The words that come through at the end are five times. Never again, never again, never again, never again, never again. And so the first great bit of hope for us to soak in from this story is to receive this picture of the true character of the maker of the universe into our hearts. This God loves us. I mean, he really, really loves us. And not just in theory, not just when we behave ourselves, but all the time he loves us. This blessing God speaks over Noah and his ancestors, it isn't a conditional promise, it's an unconditional one. It's not, humanity, if you behave yourself, I'm going to side with you. But if not, you're on your own. It's whatever happens now, for all of time, as long as the world exists, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to look to bless you. There's a prominent Genesis scholar who summed up this passage like this. He writes, Underlying the history of nature and the history of mankind is an unconditional divine yes. A divine yes to all life that cannot be shattered either by any catastrophes in the course of this history or by the mistakes, corruption, or rebellion of man. God's promise remains rock certain as long as the earth exists. Right after this story, by the way, you want to know what happens next? What's the next bit that the writer of Genesis includes? Well, Noah screws up. He screws up. He's basically found drunk and naked and comatose somewhere where he shouldn't have been. And the reason this little story gets in there right after this is surely to make this first point unmissable. God's posture towards us now and forever is an unconditional divine yes. It's a for-all-time decision for his mercy to triumph over his judgment 
It's what he speaks over Noah and all of us from there on. And, you know, we're going to see this theme of mercy triumphing over judgment in the heart of God coming again and again and again through the Bible when it comes to his character. Ultimately, it's going to point us towards fulfillment in Jesus, where God in person comes to judge the world. But when he does, uh, that judgment somehow uh, is taken on himself in order that mercy and blessing is yet again extended to us. And so this sign of the covenant, as Genesis puts it, this rainbow in the sky, is one of the first pictures in the Bible of the love of God. And it really, really, really matters. It matters because we live in a culture, don't we, where many have rejected any kind of belief in God at all. But the God that they've rejected is not this God. He's one more like the Babylonian gods, a harsh God, a God of judgment, prepared to leave us in the mess we've made and watch the world fall apart. And the good news for us this morning to soak in is that as Christians, we don't believe in that God either. We believe in this one. The one who from the beginning spoke this great cosmic promise over every single one of us. Mercy over judgment. Mercy over judgment. There's a bit more in this story for us too. There's something we all desperately need in our lives right now that we've already seen. Hope for the future of our world. Hope for the future of our world out there. Remember that this ending of the flood story is a deliberate rejection of an alternative cultural narrative that was fearful about future societal meltdown. And so it was entirely appropriate in April 2020 that the rainbow was revived as a symbol of hope for us to hang on to across the world because it really is a promise that however much our world might get messy and scary, however troubled we might feel at any moment about the depths of depravity the world might be sinking to, whether it's climate or COVID or Russian tanks moving into Europe. In spite of all this, we can hang on to the promise that there really is a God of love here with us in it all. One who has determined to preserve the world and lead it towards a certain hope-filled destiny that he set already from the beginning. Here's the truth the author of Genesis wants us to see. The future isn't going to look like us sitting back, uh, God sitting back and watching while the world burns. That's not how it's going to go. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is in this God of love coming towards us in spite of ourselves, moving in mercy, working to make all things new. And again, this picture points us forward to Jesus again, whose mission was to literally enter the world's mess himself, take it upon himself, and then take us by the hand and lead us to the new life, to begin to make all things new. So the good news for us to soak in is that it really is possible to be a person of hope in 2022. Who knew? Whatever's going on around us, we can be sure of one thing. God hasn't gone anywhere. He has the patience of history but he's a God full of love with mercy in his hands and he's coming not just for us, but for the whole world. We can be a person of hope in 2022 as a Christian. Finally, what does all this mean for us at a personal level? You know, I shared at the beginning uh, that the last month's been a pretty rough one for me. Honestly, a week ago, I was feeling like I couldn't manage 
Genuinely, I just felt a wave of exhaustion and constant discouragement become too much for me. And I know I'm not the only one to have felt like that in recent times. And when you feel like that, you can start to ask the question, can't you? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? There can be this growing sense that maybe this time you can't hold everything together in your life. In moments like that, it can feel like there really might be things starting to just collapse around you in life. And I've definitely felt some of that recently. But even this week, reflecting on the rainbow, I felt God minister to my heart through this forever promise from the heart of God. You know, the phenomenon of a rainbow in the sky is always a strange and beautiful thing. You don't just have to be like a kid to enjoy a rainbow, do you? Every time I see one, it's always both surprising and beautiful enough uh, to make me stop what I'm doing and take it in for a minute, like pull the car over and have a look. It's always a bit like that, surprising and beautiful. And the the phenomenon of a rainbow has attracted all kinds of uh, explanations through historic cultures of why it's there, none like the one offered here to us in Genesis. Yes, there's a natural cause, light coming into contact with the presence of water, refracting in such a way as to make the visible light spectrum uh, kind of visible to us. Yes, I had to look that up uh, before writing that down. Um, but the author of Genesis wants us to see something else, which is that uh, this otherwise needless quirk of nature is there to reveal something deeper about the world and to give us a window into the even more surprising, even more beautiful reality of the nature of God. Just as light in the sky meets threatening rain clouds and this beautiful arch results, So God's love and mercy and protection is always wanting to break into our lives. And some of you really need to hear that this morning. That the love and mercy and protection of God is wanting to break into your life right now. Right now, God's wanting to move towards you in kindness and mercy, in new measures for this season of your life. He's wanting to cast out fear of the future from you. He's wanting to remind you that he's secured your destiny from day one, and he set a rainbow over your life like he set a rainbow over the whole world. It's what we find about the character of God in Genesis. I want to close with this. In this series, we're talking about this idea of soaking in the love of God, right, till it changes us. I want to ask, what does it feel like to experience the love of God like this firsthand? What does it look like to experience the reality of God loving us, not just in our heads, but right down in our hearts? Well, I want to read you a quote that I came across this week about someone's experience of encountering the love of God firsthand in their own life. It was so powerful, I wanted to share it with you. It reads like it's been written by a 21st century Pentecostal, telling you that now. But it actually comes from someone two centuries ago, a preacher called Charles Finney, trying to put into words this revelation of the love of God in his life. He writes this, The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves of liquid love. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can remember distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words can express the wonderful love that was spread abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unspeakable overflow of my heart. 
these waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I remember crying out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. That God loves us, that he really, really, really loves us and is parked the bus right here with us in our lives is the truth and hope that we need to hear spoken over our aching hearts again this morning.